Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, June 25th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margo Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Happy almost Friday. (laughs) And Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. And later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Zeke Emanuel, former Obama health advisor, current COVID-19 expert, and the author of a new book called Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? But first, the news. Let us talk about coronavirus testing first, shall we? At his not terribly well-attended rally in Tulsa, President Trump said he thought the U.S. was doing too much testing because all those positives makes us all look bad. His staff said he was kidding. No, he said, I wasn't. Then top science leaders testified before the House Tuesday that the president never asked nor instructed them to slow down testing. And then on Wednesday, HHS announced it was pulling the plug on some federal funding for state testing sites, including several in Texas, where hospitals are at and in some cases exceeding capacity. Honestly, what are we to make of the state of testing in the U.S. right now? This was a really good example of the incredibly fraught relationship between Trump, the media, and his, you know, officials at HHS. And, you know, you think about past presidencies when you could take the words of the president of the United States more literally, and now you have a president with sort of this string of erratic statements about testing, and you're not really sure what he's serious about and what he's joking about. Um, And that has made it really hard for HHS um, officials because, of course, what they're trying, the message they're trying to get out is, you know, we've finally ramped up testing to about half a million tests a day. And then we're going to try to, which which equals about 15 million a week. And they're trying to get to a point this fall where we're doing 40 to 50 million. um, Sorry, did I say 15 million a week? I meant 15 million tests a month. And they're trying to get to 40 to 50 million tests a month this fall. And you saw that a promise made by uh, several officials this week, including Anthony Fauci. Um, I think where things got really mangled is that um, you saw the HHS say that they were shutter or closing down or ending federal funding to these 13 sites. Basically, this has been in the works for a long time. There, there were originally 48 federally funded testing sites set up in March. They did that because at the time, the state and local authorities didn't have the ability to set up testing sites. Now that we do have all of the, you know, thousands of those testing sites set up, Uh, The plan was to sort of phase down the federally funded sites and transfer that control over to state and local authorities. But because we have a president who's trying to, you know, make it sound as though he wants to roll back testing, a lot of reporters were taking that to mean, okay, this is some kind of calculated effort by HHS to roll back testing. And so I think that's why you saw officials kind of hold this like last minute press call yesterday, and they were very, very insistent on this idea that this was always the plan and that what they're trying to do is boost testing and increase it. We need to have more and more testing, which is, of course, at odds with what, with what their boss, the president, has been suggesting. Um, so there, I think there's, there's, you know, it's not surprising that all of this gets really, really convoluted when you have such a gap between the message that Trump is communicating and the message that 
many of his appointees at HHS are trying to communicate. Yeah, I mean, it was only 13 sites total, but, you know, sort of in the narrative of the week, it was easy to jump to the conclusion of, yeah, the federal government is, you know, pulling back from testing because the president says he wants less of it. Margo, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, I do think it's sort of emblematic, though, of this problem that we have with testing, which is that we are talking about the number of tests nationwide, right? That there's 15 million and that we want to have many more than that and that there's been progress on that front. But actually, this is not, there's not a national testing strategy. Like looking at those national numbers actually is somewhat misleading. And the fact that the federal government is pulling back from even the very limited role it had in providing direct testing in the states uh, you know, just furthers the fact that it's up to states and municipalities. They're really in this by themselves. Um, my colleague Sarah Cliff had a story today about what's going on on the ground in Arizona. So that's one of the states that's had a real surge in cases of coronavirus. And they don't have enough testing capacity. I mean, they don't have the personnel. They don't have the swabs. They don't have the lab processing. There are these long backlogs. So people are getting tests and having to wait a really long time because the machines are like running 24 hours a day. Uh, there are a lot of people who can't get in for tests because they just don't have the ability to manage them. And there are other places in the country that don't have a coronavirus problem that have a lot of testing capacity. But because the Trump administration has basically left it to states, buy your own supplies, run, buy your own machines, run your own labs, have your own testing strategy, that means that there's not an easy way for you know testing capacity that's not being used in some other state to suddenly be shifted over to Arizona when Arizona has a crisis. So I think uh, it is true that the closure of those particular sites, I think, is maybe a little bit less alarming than people thought. But and the president's remarks maybe don't reflect the strategy of some of his top health officials. But I do think that they reflect a lack of interest by the federal government in really managing a testing strategy overall. And that is leading to problems and breakdowns and testing in places where we need it, because the states are just not as good at this as the federal government could be. Yeah. And, you know, um, Margaret, you're anticipating my next question, which is that, you know, aside from the war of words, there are a lot of problems on the ground. Apparently, that very fancy Abbott machine that the president demonstrated back in the Rose Garden has a dangerous habit of saying a test is negative when it's really positive. And meanwhile, I know a, a, a case that made us all want our heads to explode in Austin, where COVID cases are climbing rapidly, test results are backed up as much as 10 days because local labs are submitting results to the health department by facts still. Um, we have by far the most expensive medical care system on the planet. How are we getting so outpaced on simple things like testing by the likes of Taiwan and New Zealand? I think it, there's probably a lot of different answers because it's really complicated. But I think one reason is our healthcare system is really hard to mobilize quickly because it's so diversified. So you know, we don't have like one central kind of orchestrator that can like see the needs in one area and try to kind of engineer everything so that the supplies are getting to, you know, labs that are all working together. We have like some public labs and we have some private labs and we have all different kinds of payers. And so 
like the demand is kind of convoluted. And I mean, I just remember back to when in April, when testing had really kind of stalled, like we were around uh, about 130,000 tests being performed every day. And we really stayed at that level for the most part through April. And everyone was trying to kind of figure out what are the issues? Like, why is this not ramping up? Um, And I just remember talking to the Medical Device Manufacturers Association, who presumably, you know, their members are supplying a lot of these testing products, and they couldn't even tell me where some of the supply chain problems were. I just think the nature of the U.S. healthcare system is such that, you know, we're, we're like really, really good at certain things like drug development, et cetera. But when it comes to like quickly mobilizing to respond to a pandemic crisis, we're just not very good at that. Well, meanwhile, in most of the states that are seeing spiraling cases, many, if not most of those testing positive are younger people, under 35, in some cases under 25. That may account for a lowering death rate. The younger you are, the smaller your chance of actually dying from COVID-19. But still, it appears that younger people are now the major vector in spreading the virus. What does that mean for things like reopening schools and colleges in the fall? Well, it's definitely concerning for that lower age group. Um, a lot of colleges are planning to go back in the fall and, you know, they've put out different plans to do that. But, you know, it, it is a question over how long will they remain open? Will they have to, you know, send people home if they have major outbreaks? Um, you know, young people are aren't showing high signs of hospitalizations, but that doesn't mean that they're not interacting then with people who are older and then who, you know, will need to get hospitalized and will have more serious cases. Um, So we're all kind of watching to see over the next few weeks whether, you know, we see that surge happen um, later on. But it seems that what what is going on is that a lot of these transmissions are happening because of the reopenings and because people seem to have the impression that reopenings means that we're past the pandemic or that we're past the surge. And in fact, a lot of states hadn't even gotten close to the surge when they had shut down. And then it's the reopenings that is leading to some of these larger numbers. And, you know, a lot of places don't seem like they're willing to, you know, ramp up testing or go back to shut down or leave things in different phases. Instead, they're sort of proceeding ahead with moving into the next phases, even though they're not meeting their goals in reducing transmission and reducing positive cases of the virus. This is also, it's a disease that spreads really fast, but that becomes evident kind of slowly. And I think that that poses uh, real challenges for public health officials who are trying to track this and for uh, anyone who's, (laughs) you know, trying to decide what to do next in their own life or in in the policymaking. So, you know, we see this rise in cases among young people. That seems like a population that is at lower risk of having serious disease or death, but I mean, not zero, but lower than older populations. But, you know, Anthony Fauci was testifying before Congress this week, and he said, well, you know, we're worried that these people are going to give it to older people, and then we're going to see these deaths come later. But it really could be weeks. And, uh, you know, by the time we start to see that kind of transmission, it may be pretty late to mitigate it. So I think, you know, I wouldn't want to be a governor in this moment trying to decide what to do because, this is a new pattern of transmission. This is a new population that's getting this disease. And in the short term, it seems worrisome, but not super duper dangerous. But we could be in a moment right now where those people are starting to spread it to their parents, to their coworkers, and to other people who may be more vulnerable. It's going to take a couple of weeks before we really know whether those people get sick. To Margot's point, I would absolutely hate to be a state governor right now. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'd also hate to be a public health official. Like there have been these stories about how some of the public health officials are really enduring abuse by 
both citizens and governors. There was a case where one of them was actually forced out by uh, the West Virginia governor yesterday. But um, but but I think I think like one of the really hard cases to make to young people is that they're not the ones that are bearing the um, they're, they're not the ones that are getting really seriously ill, but they're the ones that had to largely bear the economic burden of the shutdown. So you're trying to make the case to people in their 20s and 30s that, OK, many of you like lost your jobs for several months. You know, how, how are governors going to convince them to continue with social distancing when they're not personally worried about getting it, trying to convince them that they could be the vectors for other people. That's just a really hard case to make to people. And I think that is why you're seeing a lot of governors sort of unwilling to say that they're going to go back on the lockdowns. And you see that pretty much across the board. It's not just Republicans. It's, you know, it's the governor of California as well, who has been, you know, perhaps was the most aggressive governor of any initially in locking down California early. So it's, it's a real challenge. I don't know. I really don't know how this is all going to play out. I was going to say, just in my own neighborhood walking the dog, I keep seeing, you know, not just groups, throngs of, you know, teenagers mostly who have never been wearing masks and never been social distancing. I mean, there's a park across the street where I walk the dog and it's like every day there are big clusters of teenagers. And I'm like, I just don't want to come anywhere near you guys. It does seem like one thing that some governors and other officials are starting to consider are these mask requirements. So North Carolina is an example of a state that is, I think, fairly far along in their reopening plan, but the governor just issued an order that everyone has to wear a mask when they're outside. So I wonder if we'll start to see things more like that, Paige, like not going back to full shutdowns, but uh, some of these like mask requirements or other kinds of restrictions that try to um, at least slow things down, even as people are out of their homes. Yeah, I mean, we're looking at seven months, really, until there's a vaccine at the earliest. I mean, Fauci did, he did seem optimistic about the idea of having a vaccine as early as January. But yeah, there's going to have to be some kind of like sustainable approach over the next seven months. All right, well, we're going to move on. I put this next topic in the rundown as we already knew people of color were being hit harder by COVID, but now we have data. Um, The first data point is from the Department of Health and Human Services, which found that uh, black Medicare beneficiaries were hospitalized at four times the rate of white Medicare beneficiaries. Hispanics were twice as likely to be hospitalized with COVID and Asians about one and a half times more likely than whites. We've talked about this before and how structural racism and socioeconomics makes minorities more vulnerable to the disease and to getting more severely ill. What else should we be doing from a public health point of view to address this most glaring health disparity? Well, there have been a couple of columns written about what should be done in particular, making sure that you're targeting specific communities and that you're hiring contact tracing uh, staff that come from these communities to be able to talk to them about getting tested and who else they interacted with. Um, Certainly the disparities that we're seeing are tied to a lot of the things that we talk about if people you know a lot of these people are essential workers and haven't been able to stay at home in the middle of this pandemic um you know they many of them live in poverty and are are in spaces that are um you know in which they're close to others and they're not able to social distance when they come home and so all of you know in, in the middle of all this you do kind of have this cry to look more broadly at issues like housing issues like fair pay issues like you know health insurance coverage and making sure that some of those gaps are covered so that um, you don't see some of these disparities so the disparities already existed it's just they now that they've been heightened in the middle of this pandemic 
one of the things that surprises me that we haven't done is I know in a lot of other countries, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who live in crowded housing conditions, you know, with lots of people. And so when they test positive, there's a place for them to go and quarantine. And I've seen very little of that in this country. Um, that would seem to be a fairly obvious thing that if you need to isolate, there should be a place for you to go and, you know, and get food and get medical care. It doesn't obviously have to be a hospital for most people, but um, that, that seems to be, you know, sort of de rigueur in a lot of other countries. And I mean, very rare here. I think this whole thing is just really highlighting a conversation that's been going on for several years, and especially around the time the Affordable Care Act was passed, and then as Democrats argued for why it was needed, which is people having access to preventive health care. I mean, if you look at the CDC data, that that big uh, trough of data they released, I think, a week ago, um, you know, there's huge, I don't remember the exact percentages, but like there's huge, huge, uh, uh, number of patients with diabetes and obesity. And we've said for years that if we could just solve for that and reduce those two factors, we would make immense, immense strides in the health of Americans. So, I mean, that's kind of a simple thing we've known for a really long time. And we, you know, we haven't really, we haven't really made much progress in that area, and now it's really coming back to bite us. All right. Well, there's actually some non-COVID news this week. Nothing from the Supreme Court yet, um, but other court decisions. Uh, first, the Trump administration actually won a round in court this week regarding price transparency for hospitals. Margot, you wrote about that. Tell us what happened. Yeah, so this is like a big healthcare initiative from the Trump administration where they think that if there was more publicity around how much hospitals and insurance companies have negotiated for their prices, that that will create pressure, downward pressure on prices because individuals will know how expensive their knee surgery is really going to be. And also because employers that buy insurance for their workers will know a little bit more about who's in their contracts and who is getting a really sweet deal that maybe they would want to tell their insurance company, like, let's not use this really expensive hospital. Um, whether or not that's true is super controversial. It's actually a really interesting area of research because these prices have been secret for so long that we really don't know what it will mean to make them public. Uh, but both the insurers and the hospitals are opposed to this transparency, which I think is interesting because usually you see them on opposite sides um, because they're on opposite sides of the negotiating table. The hospitals went to court to try to um, fight this rule. They said that they thought it was unlawful, and they also said that they thought it would have this perverse effect of increasing prices. And a judge this week basically said, sorry, like your arguments do not have a lot of merit, and um, said that the rule could move forward. Um, just a couple of things. I mean, one, I think this will be appealed. The AHA said it's going to appeal it. Um, and this is a Trump appointed judge who made this ruling. Um, and he's in the D.C. Circuit Court where there are a lot of judges that are not Trump appointed judges as well. And so it's not clear to me what will happen to this on appeal. Um, but it's just definitely, I mean, at least at this stage, a big win for the Trump administration and for a policy that I think uh, is quite innovative and interesting. And um, if it moves forward, it will happen in January and we'll be able to uh, look up the prices of everything. It will be a great boon to journalism to have that information public at the very least. I wonder if Trump is not president in January, if the incoming administration might want to keep this this rule around. Great question. I would love to. We should put that to the Biden campaign. I'm curious. I don't know if it's something that they've given much thought to. Yeah. 
because I mean, because transparency is not a, a partisan thing. It's been sort of a, a bipartisan uh, effort. All right. Well, speaking of politics, um, the first round of briefs are due to the Supreme Court today. In that case, trying to invalidate the Affordable Care Act, the court won't hear the case until the fall. But not wanting to miss a chance to remind the public that the Trump administration and Republicans want the health law to go away, House Democrats this week unveiled their new Fix the ACA bill called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act Enhancement Act. That's quite the mouthful, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Okay. Uh, so ACIEA. PPACIEA. It's better than the name they had last year. Yes. Yeah, that's true. You you can't really you got a chance to to an early peek at this bill, which the House is expected to vote on next week, right? Tell us what's in it and what isn't. They're voting on it Monday, and it essentially works to push back some of the Trump administration's changes to the ACA and also sort of fix some of the issues that have emerged as, you know, the ACA rolled out, including the fact that you have a millions of people who don't qualify for subsidies because they make more than 400% of the federal poverty level. What this bill would do is it was it would allow anyone who's shopping on the ACA marketplaces to be able to get health insurance um, above that you know, above that 400% of the federal poverty level threshold so that they would pay no more than 8.5% of their income for health insurance and the government would basically kick in the rest. The bill also um, allows women to remain on Medicaid for a year after they give birth. Right now that is capped off at 60 days and that's kind of part of a a huge um, attention that we've seen from members of Congress to reduce maternal mortality and disability after birth. Um, It also would incentivize those holdout states that have not expanded Medicaid to go ahead and do so by allowing them to qualify for a full funding of Medicaid expansion, even if they decided to do it late. So right now they get 90% of the funding. So it's intended to really put pressure on those states. And then kind of the big add on to all this is that they have uh, funded all these health insurance expansions through their drug negotiation bill. So they want to use the bill that they passed last December. Correct. So they want to use the savings from that bill to fund these health insurance expansions. And they really want to put Republicans in a tough spot and sort of dare them to vote against this, which many of them will, um, in the middle of a pandemic, a law that expanded health insurance coverage to 20 million people and also expanded um, protections for people with pre-existing conditions. But this this bill doesn't have a lot of the things that the more liberal Democrats would like. It doesn't even have what Biden has proposed, sort of a a, a rollback of Medicare um, eligibility age to 60. I mean, I I assume that this is to protect the more moderate Democrats in the House, right? It is. I mean, they didn't say that openly when I asked about it on the Hill um, this week, but... Um, yes, they don't want to put people in a tough spot to uh, vote in favor of, you know, a public option, a government buy-in. But I will also say I do think that there isn't really a consensus on what a public option would look like. You know, does it look like rolling back Medicare so that people can, you know, enroll at a younger age? Does it look like uh, enrolling into Medicaid instead of Medicare? Do you let states do it? So there's not really as much consensus on that as what some of the problems were with the ACA in terms of affordability and um, in terms of, uh, you know, filling some of the gaps that were left after court decisions and after Republican rollbacks of um, the, the health care provisions. So on Earth 2, where Margot and I would be headed to Aspen, um, this would be a really big debate right now. Um, are we going to see it or is the p- pandemic going to sort of overshadow 
uh, the the rest of the sort of the health agenda between now and November. Anybody anybody want to speculate? I have no idea. I actually, it's I don't know. It's um, I think Democrats realize it's a, the pandemic has presented them with a really good opportunity to make the case for expanding health coverage, and they're they're definitely being really aggressive this week and trying to get reporters to write about it. I pro- probably half the emails in my inbox yesterday were from some. Uh, de-affiliated group trying to get me to write about this. Um, so, so like they recognize that politically the pandemic is good for them, but also the pandemic, it's hard to like break through with any other news during the pandemic when all of the healthcare reporters are quite preoccupied with, you know, tracking the cases and hospitalizations and vaccine development and, and everything else that, that all of us are writing about. So I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't have a date for the Supreme Court um, hearing, um, this fall, I would imagine that there would be a lot of attention around that. Um, and of course that'll be right before the election. So I'm, I'm sure Democrats will try to try to, you know, seize that and and run as far as they can with that opportunity. Yeah. I think politically the Supreme court decision is probably the biggest opportunity for Democrats to really highlight the ways in which they differ from the Trump administration and their approach to healthcare and also, um, you know, the way that they, that people are thinking about their own financial security and access to healthcare during the pandemic. But I think having this bill as well, an offering of something affirmative. So it's not just like we did something 10 years ago that we're not going to take away, but also here are some more improvements in this policy, some more expansion of coverage uh, helps them make that case. And I agree with Paige that I think the degree to which this is salient in the fall uh, probably depends to some degree on where we are with coronavirus and how dire a crisis it is and distracting it is from other issues. But also, um, it may have to do with the prominence of the Supreme Court debate, which I think will very much put the Trump administration's policies uh, on the front burner. And I, I guess it, I just to circle back to this transparency rule, um, it's actually a rule that relies on legislative language in the Affordable Care Act. And That is true of so many things that the Trump administration has been doing and a lot of the things that it's done in its pandemic response. You know, the Affordable Care Act is this huge healthcare law that's on the books that provides them with the ability to do a lot of things and they have not been shy about using it to try to achieve various healthcare goals that they have. Um, I think that is hard, that makes it hard for them to defend a position of wanting to roll back the entire law without a really clear plan about what comes instead. And there's no evidence at all that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign is getting any closer to having a detailed alternative vision to the Affordable Care Act in the case that it is repealed. Well, we will clearly have much more of this to talk about, but uh, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for my interview with Zeke Emanuel. Then we will be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Zeke Emanuel. He's an oncologist by training, a former Obama aide who worked on the Affordable Care Act, and now runs the Department of Medical Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, among several other titles. He's also a regular fixture on cable TV, commenting about COVID-19, which we will get to. But he's mainly here today because he has a brand new book out called Which Country Has the World's Best Health Care? And as a health nerd, I am unreasonably excited about this. Welcome to the podcast, Zeke. Great to be here with you, Julie. So first of all, you are everywhere, it seems. When did you have time to write this book? Well, I began this book in 2017. My first trip was to Norway, where we spent a couple of weeks there, and I talked to a lot of health policy people, universities, the government, the medical association. So 
We started there and then went country to country. And how many countries did you do? In addition to the U.S., we did 10 other countries. And you went to all of them? Well, I've been to all of them. I won't say I went for this book. Some of the interviews, because I had been to those countries and I knew a lot of healthcare people and I had actually done some work before. For example, in Australia, we did a lot of telephone interviews for that. Canada, similarly. So there are a lot of books comparing the U.S. health system to those of other nations. What makes this one different? Uh, (laughs) It's written by a policy wonk. It's written from the perspective of the United States trying to learn what we can do better in the United States. We organized it not on an anecdotal basis. We also didn't just try to rank by number. We tried to get a similar feel. What's the history of the healthcare system? How do they pay for healthcare? How do they get coverage? How do people get care? And we had particular foci, which I think are a little different from most evaluations. Mental health, we thought this was really important, gonna be a growing problem over the next few decades. We wanted to learn what people were doing in that area. Drug prices and drug price regulation, we looked at every country in that. Long-term care, another major issue that is important. And then we tried to say, all right, from the perspective of intelligent citizens who want to affect change, what is important to them? And we laid out 22 metrics, many of which are not quantitative. For example, which country gives you more choice of doctor or more choice of insurer? That's not a quantitative thing. Um, So we laid out these 22 different metrics and evaluated countries based upon them. And you did some sort of not-so-typical countries. I mean, we're used to seeing the same handful of countries that that are compared by academics. Yeah, so we tried to get a spread. France ranked number one by the WHO in 2000. Almost no Americans know anything about French because all their stuff is written in French and not translated easily. And we don't have that many health policy experts who study France, so we wanted to do France. Switzerland is a darling of conservatives, so we wanted to do Switzerland. Lots of liberals like anything Scandinavian, so we wanted to do our Scandinavian country. Uh, Germany and the Netherlands have this system, which is a little distinctive in that they have private insurance. Everyone pays to the government, but the actual organization of care is done through private insurance. And then, of course, Britain and Canada are the usual whipping boys. Um, And then we also wanted to do some on the Pacific coast. Look at China because that's a big emerging market. What are they doing? Taiwan, which gets very high satisfaction rate, very, very high satisfaction rate. Um, Australia, because they have some innovative things going on, especially around drug pricing that I knew about. And we wanted to understand how the system overall worked. So that was the goal. I I will tell you as a little aside, I was trying to do a project once and I got all the health ministers who were here for a meeting to sit down and try to describe their system in an understandable way. (laughs) And pretty much none of them could, including those for whom English was a first language. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, we had this experience. So the very first country I went to was Norway. And so I asked the simple, what I thought of a simple question. So how did you get to the healthcare system here? And it was like, Almost everyone was scratching their heads. We don't know the history. And then I went to a class and I said what I was doing. And the professor said, wow, I wish I had that for my medical students because all we have is these sort of complicated observatory, you know, monographs that are two, 300 pages, no students reading that. And we don't have a simple description for people who are going to enter the system. So a lot of people, even in other countries, were interested in trying to understand their own country, but also neighboring countries. So it turned out to be more advantageous than I thought it would be, actually. Well, 
I want to personally thank you for explaining the Canadian system in a way that I feel like I understand it for the first time. Although now it's sort of looking through, it's like, shouldn't we really be describing Canada as Medicaid for all rather than Medicare for all? I know it's called Medicare, but it really operates, if, if, if you're looking at it through a U.S. lens, it operates like Medicaid, right? And that was a total discovery for me. That, that was one of the discoveries that it's really run at each province level. There are sort of five guiding principles that are at the national level, but the actual operations and what's paid for, what's covered, et cetera, is done at the provincial level. And second, it, the other discovery to me, and I think probably to almost everyone of this podcast, in Canada, they don't cover drugs. Uh, it's not part of the Medicare package. And in fact, people have to get their drug coverage through their employer. Uh, so they are behind in that regard, uh, many other countries. Yes, well, I, I knew that from the criticisms of Canada. Um, one big takeaway, it strikes me, and I for, forgive me, I haven't read the whole book, but I've read a good chunk of it, is that it seems like every system is pretty multi-layered and pretty complicated. You know, we like to think we lead the world in, you know, in, in confusion in health, when it comes to health care. But even the ones that we like to describe as simple really aren't, are they? You're absolutely right. We are the most complicated. So the United States takes the award for the most complicated, and there are many systems that are simpler, but it's a comparative statement, as you correctly point out, Julie. It's just complicated because you gotta get people coverage, then you have to pay all these hospitals, you have to pay all these doctors, home health care agencies. So every system turns out to be incredibly complicated. On the other hand, that doesn't mean the way individual citizens get coverage is complicated, and that we do take the cake. We basically cover the world, we have every different system from single payer to socialized medicine to private insurance. We encompass multitudes, as Walt Whitman says, and that's true when it comes to how we provide coverage to every American. And we don't provide coverage to every American. So I, I don't want to give it away, but the debate until now has been, you know, we should adopt X country's system or Y country's system. And I feel like your your message here is that we really need to do the, you know, more of the one from column A and one from column B. And some countries do things better than other countries. And some countries may have a good system, but they don't do other things as well. Is, is that where you're, you're trying to lead with this? <laughs> well, when you have 22 metrics, you do quickly understand that no country is good in all of them. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there are some where no country at all and the world is good on mental health is, is a good example. Um, on the other hand, you know, if what you really want is, I don't want to pay anything when I go see the doctor or go into the hospital. One that there are particular countries you ought to be, you know, you ought to like, like Canada and the Britain lead that list. Um, if you don't, if you want low drug prices, it's a gr different group of countries, you know, then you're looking at Norway and Australia and Taiwan. Um, if you want free and unlimited choice of doctors, you know, then you're talking about Germany and France and Switzerland. So it really depends what your top priority list is. Um, I will say the United States doesn't do that well overall. We're not in the top 10. Uh, on the other hand, we're not the bottom of the barrel. Uh, I think China does take that in both the way it covers people, but also the trust in the system. The, uh, uh, the fact that it's so hospital-centric, which almost every other country is trying to move away from. Um, so, you know, it, it is the case that there's not one single score, and I think we, we've tried to get away from that. That kind of ranking just won't work.
And that might actually help the debate as we go forward, right? It'll make it, I hope, more intelligent. So I'm interested in the fact that this book is coming out in the middle of the pandemic. We've obviously seen the virus hit other countries in different ways. Some have been hit harder. Some have recovered better. Do you feel like that's because of or in spite of their healthcare systems or are there other reasons? I think it, there are other reasons. So the we're in the acute phase of this COVID-19 and the main response is driven by uh, the public health systems and not the health care systems. That's an important distinction not everyone gets. Fortunately, I'm talking to you, Julie, and you do understand that. You know, public health is about things like uh, trying to limit the spread of infections. It's about good nutrition. It's about exercise. Uh, it's about safety around accidents and things like that. It's about containing communicable diseases. Absolutely. Also, the healthcare system is about treating people once they're pretty sick. Um, there is some prevention in the healthcare system. Almost every country, immunizations, cancer screenings, and those things are part of the healthcare system. But I would say uh, Taiwan stands out as a country who responded incredibly well to this COVID-19, the best in the world, I think, by far. Uh, they still have fewer than 500 cases. They have only seven deaths. And yet Taiwan is the country closest to China. It had a million citizens working in China. It could have been a disaster there, but they actually responded incredibly well. And one element of their healthcare system did facilitate that, that we discuss in the book, and that's their health card. They have this universal health card, everyone gets it. You go to the doctor, they swipe it so that the Ministry of Health has a record that you went to the doctor. When the doctor charges you for things, they swipe it again, and the Ministry of Health knows what services you use. And they were able to use that effectively in at least two ways. First, they could merge that with the Immigration and Customs database and see who was in Wuhan, who was in China, and immediately target them for testing. And second, they were able to see who's going to the doctor for respiratory illness, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, and tested negative for influenza. Those people need to be tested because they might have COVID. And that allowed them to very rapidly find out who was positive for COVID and isolate them so it didn't spread. And that was a huge advantage compared to every other country. Including ours. Especially including ours. So the U.S. spends so much money on medical care, and yet we seem utterly unable as a nation to address this pandemic, largely for political reasons. Are there other countries whose health systems and public health systems are as politicized as ours, or are we number one in that too? Uh, we seem to be very high. Uh, this is more of a football, and there does seem to be more consensus. Even, But that doesn't guarantee a good response. I mean, look at Britain. There's more of a consensus. People really love the NHS. Even conservative governments have now had to say, oh, yes, we're going to uh, increase funding for the National Health Service. You should remember the Brexit vote, right, in England to get out of the EU. Part of the motivation is we'll take all that money and we'll invest in the National Health Service. Didn't turn out that way, but lots of pride in the National Health Service, and yet Britain's done uh, maybe not as bad as the United States, but it's a close runner-up. And I've seen, you know, protests in lots of countries about lockdown, so I guess we're not alone in that either. Correct. So fi finally, um, there is still a presidential campaign that's allegedly going on right now. Um, how do you think the pandemic has changed the way Americans are going to think about health as they go to the polls? I think that's an excellent question. So let's remember December 2019. I know it seems like ages ago, and it is ages ago, given the intensity of the last six months. But at that point, healthcare was the number one issue. Affordability was the number one issue within healthcare and drug prices within that. So that's how we were thinking about it. We wanted to get a more affordable system and we wanted drug price regulation as part of that affordability. I think that's still true. 
On the other hand, we also have to add two other key elements. Uh, clearly, the problem with coverage has become much more obvious, I think, to people uh, for two reasons. You know, I want to say we don't have a path to universal coverage. Every country but China has 99 to 100% people covered. No question about universal coverage. And China is on the way to universal coverage. We don't. We don't even have a path there because of the uh, 14 implacable states, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and the others, that will not expand Medicaid. And therefore, you can't get to universal coverage in this country given the current structure of the system. And the second problem, which COVID has shown, is 50 million people are going to lose employer-sponsored coverage because of unemployment. Either the workers who get employer-sponsored coverage or their dependents, they're losing coverage. And they're going to end up largely on Medicaid or on nothing if they're in one of those non-expansion states. And that, I think, is rearranging the deck chairs of healthcare in a major way. Employer-sponsored insurance will no longer be the dominant mode in this country. Medicaid will overtake it as having more people. And that, I think, changes our thinking about how we provide coverage in this country. Um, and I think that opens up possibilities. Now, we haven't had a national debate about that because this is very, very new. But I do think, you know, assuming the Democrats win and they do take the Senate, you'll have, I think, major health care reform uh, will be a top agenda item. I think the public. So here's the other element way I think about it. The public coming out of COVID wants security. One of the things COVID has made clear is we have a very holy social safety net. We want security. Holy meaning with holes in it, not Holes in it, not, religious. yes, not religious, yes. It's like Swiss cheese in that there are a lot of things that we don't cover. We cover for this worker, but not that worker. I think people are like fed up with that. We want universal health care coverage. And if we have coverage, we don't want to be afraid of using our coverage uh, because of costs. We want unemployment insurance for everyone, gig workers, self-employed, everyone. We want to have family sick leave guaranteed and not just for, you know, people who work for good employers. Um, we want parental leave. So I think you're going to get a package of what we need in this country to shore up the safety net. And by the way, that'll be fantastic for people and especially for low-income people whose income fluctuates around the poverty line. Having this very solid floor will, I think, what, one of the things we've seen from the expansion under the ACA is it actually significantly reduces stress on people and actually improves their mental health. We also know that health insurance actually reduces mortality, so that's a real big benefit. You know, it's a, it's a good thing all around. Reduces mortality, provides mental health support, and solves a lot of the stress in families and probably will, over the longer term, improve other aspects of people's health. But I think that's coming back to the national agenda because COVID has made clear the problems of our current system. I look forward to an actual debate getting started. Zeke Emanuel, thank you so much. This was great. Julie, this was great. Thanks for the interview. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? 
Sure, I'm going to share one of my stories. <laughs> That's all right. Um, I always encourage that. People rarely do it. <laughs> I know, I know. But this one I spent a lot of time on. I combed through FEC Records, a uh, nice long business insider title. We combed through the political donations of 75 top healthcare companies. They reveal that executives are making a surprising choice in how they give their cash. And essentially, we found that similar to in 2016, President Trump isn't a big recipient of donations from healthcare executives. And so uh, we talk about who made the cut instead and who is given, giving to the Biden campaign now that he's moving closer to um, formally accepting the nomination. Interesting. Paige. Yeah, uh, this was a really great piece in the New York Times with the headline, They Just Dumped Him Like Trash, Nursing Homes Evict Vulnerable Residents. And it's by Jessica Silver Greenberg and Amy Julia Harris. And it just takes a look at what nursing homes are doing as they're getting more um, patients sick with the coronavirus. Of course, I, th I think at this point, more than 50,000 residents and employees of nursing homes have um, have died from the disease. Um, but, but what's happening is actually you see a lot more nursing homes seeming to evict um, residents that are perhaps on Medicaid or lower income. Uh, they actually make more money. I mean, this has been something that's been going on a long time, but it's just happening more now um, because they actually can make more money off of patients that have, uh, from Medicare, they can make about $600 more per day from patients that have coronavirus. And so sort of the financial calculation is that they can, um, you know, come out better financially if they're clearing space for these coronavirus patients. And that's this is resulting in a lot of uh, poorer seniors kind of being kicked out and the rules aren't always being followed. You know, the federal rules require these nursing homes to give them, I think, 30 days notice. They have to be put in a safe place, etc. And this story kind of goes through how those rules aren't always being followed. So it was a really interesting look um, as kind of another angle of how the, the virus is, is really hurting, you know, the, the country's elderly. I wanted to highlight actually two stories from ProPublica, um, uh, from J. David McSwain and Ryan Gabrielson. And the the main one I want to talk about is one called The Trump Administration and Paid Millions for Test Tubes and Got Unusable Mini Margo. Soda Bottles. But uh, uh, David McSwain has a story out today as well uh, that is looking at... Uh, a vendor that took masks that came in packaging that said not for medical use and was hiring people on TaskRabbit to repackage those masks in bags that uh, did not include that language and then send it, was sending them to hospitals. And what both of these stories really show is how in this mad scramble to get PPE and testing supplies out during the early days of the crisis, the federal government uh, did a lot of contracting with people who have never been contractors, have never worked in medical supply before, and many of them are doing extremely shady and corrupt things uh, in order to grab millions of dollars in federal contracts. Um, in the case of the soda bottle story, uh, the government had a contract for uh, bottles that the um, testing swabs could be stored in when they were sent to labs, and they're, so they're supposed to be a certain type of bottle, a certain size that could fit in racks. They were supposed to be sterile and then they were supposed to include a kind of like culture medium where the virus would stay alive while it was transported. 
And what this vendor did who made, you know, millions of dollars on this contract is he instead bulk purchased these small plastic bottles, which uh, if you put them under a certain kind of pressure will expand to uh, turn into two liter soda bottles. So this is like a very common product that's used in soda manufacturing. And he just like bought containers full of them. They were not sterile, used uh snow shovels to shovel them (laughs) into boxes and um then in like an open warehouse with like fans blowing around and no sterile anything they were just pouring bottles of saline uh in non-measured amounts into these bottles and then shipping them off to hospitals and testing labs who basically said we can't use these in addition to the fact that it's the wrong liquid and they're not sterile uh they also didn't fit in the racks and so they couldn't even use them as part of their testing process so and the federal government you know paid this contractor a lot of money So I really admire the work that ProPublica is doing uh, in looking at this kind of contracting. And again, I think it comes back to a theme we talked about earlier, which is, you know, the federal government just seems like it is really not being as vigilant and not uh, really taking all the steps that it could to have a big national response on uh, some of these really crucial aspects of the coronavirus fight. My face palm emoji is just getting so much work these days. <laughs> um, my extra credit uh, this week is from my KHN colleagues Liz Zabo and Jay Hancock, along with USA Today's Kevin McCoy, Donovan Slack, and Dennis Wagner. It's a follow-up to a story Liz did a few weeks ago that we also talked about here, about the damage that can be done by so-called rubber bullets and other allegedly non-lethal weapons police use for crowd control. It turns out, according to one study, that 3% of people hit with these projectiles die as a result, which is higher than the COVID-19 death rate in many places. Uh, Other injuries include people losing eyes, having their jaws broken, suffering serious head injuries, in one case exploding a testicle. People get not, uh, police get not a ton of training about how to use these weapons, and despite orders not to aim them at people's torsos or heads, there are lots of people in the story who were unarmed and got shot at close range, high up on their bodies, uh, and had a lot of damage done. A warning, the pictures that go with this story are pretty gruesome, but you should read it anyway. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks as always to our intrepid producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Or go. At Sanger Katz. Paige. At PW underscore Cunningham. Kimberly. At Leonard KL. We won't be back in your feed next week unless we hear from the Supreme Court about the abortion case. Uh, If we don't, we will see you the week after next. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.